It's good to be with you. My name's Alex. Um, I am not the pastor here if you're visiting this morning, um, but it's good to be back. I was here last week. Um, if we've not met, I, I live actually in L.A. and work uh, with college students at, the, at USC through our denominational's college ministry called RUF, and uh, that affords me a great relationship with a lot of ministers in our, our region, one being Kyle uh, Wells. So I am thankful to Kyle and the elders at this invitation to, to be here last week and, and this week. And if you weren't here last week, what we're doing is trying to spend just two weeks uh, thinking a little bit about the enormous topic of biblical marriage. And what, what we did last week is introduce the idea that um, when we think about deep, intimate relationships in our culture, uh, it, it is deeply crowded with the idea of cynicism, that we are very suspicious that that's a possibility and that's a reality. And what I wanted to communicate to you last week is that there is a tree of life. And the Bible says that Jesus will partake of it, but now you can partake of it yourself, meaning that the deep richness that we long for in relationships is possible now to taste life. And you're meant to taste it in relationships. And if you're not married and if marriage is not something on your horizon, um, what the Bible has to say about that is that 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 promise and that reality speaks beyond just the context of marriage. That those promises and those realities are particular to all of our relationships. That that we're suspicious of friendship even. We're suspicious of co-workers. We're suspicious of parents. We're suspicious of siblings. And these realities of promising us life in relationships are particular to all of our relationships. And what we wanted to know is that we, those are out there and that it's a reality, but we've also been told that we were banished from that garden and we lost that reality. But in the gospel, we get a foretaste of it coming back and we get a promised reality that it one day will be ultimately fulfilled through Jesus. But while we remain in the already not yet. We can still taste the tree of life. And the Apostle Paul begins to really pick up on that reality when he quotes Genesis 2 in this passage when he says what the early writers wrote when he said, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. And that's the intimate longing that we have. To be one flesh. It's the ultimate promise in marriage. But let's not limit that longing just to marriage. Because what you want is unity in a friendship. Even as something as mundane as an athletic team, you want to be one on that team. You want to be one in mind. One in spirit. One in purpose. Your business wants that. Your friendships want that. You want that in your family. And most desirably, we want that in our marriage, to be one flesh. And so what I want to do this morning is to say, how do we do that? How do we get back to one flesh? How can we pursue one flesh? And the answer to that is in here, it's out there, it's down there, and it's up there. To pursue one flesh, it's in here, it's out there, it's down there, and it's up there. Okay? So to pursue one flesh, first... It's in there. Look what it says, what Paul writes at the end of chapter 32, when he says this. He says, be kind and compassionate to one another. 
Some translations say be kind and tender-hearted to one another. Uh, I love Eugene Peterson's translation of the message where he says, be gentle and sensitive to one another. And all the language uh, is meant to be in contrasting to verse 31. In fact, the, uh, in the Greek, it has a transition there that's picked up on the King James Version where it says, be ye therefore kind and compassionate. And the idea is, if you look back in verse 31, where it says this, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with malice. And so as Paul unveils sort of uh, the characteristics of a hellacious relationship, he says, in contrast to that, be like this, kind and compassionate and tenderhearted. And the idea is that you, when you get in a relationship, are called to deeply think about yourself and deeply think about somebody else in contrasting ways. That your tendency will be to be one way, but you're called to be another way. Jonathan Edwards, in his great book, uh, Charity and Its Fruits, said that our natural tendency in relationships is that when there is tension and when there is fallout and when there is anger and frustration, we will be very, very, very sober to somebody else, but very charitable to ourselves. So that when there is a fight, when there is a disagreement of some kind, what our natural tendency to do is to look at somebody else and say, I knew they were just like this. Or here they go again. It's just like I thought they would do. But to ourselves, we go, well, I've had a long day. I've been under a lot of stress lately. Um, or this person is just really difficult to deal with. And this is kind of the, the reaction that I, I pose with this. But what we tend to do is we tend to be very kind and compassionate to ourselves. And very malicious and very anger oriented and very judgmental and sober to other people. He says, this is the natural tendency. A couple years ago on the SAT, the students were asked a question, do you think that you are more kind and caring than most people you know? Over 94% people answered yes. (laughs) See, what the gospel calls you to do and what Paul is calling you to do now is to reverse that. To be very sober to yourself and very charitable to other people. That is, when you have a fallout, when you have a disagreement, when you have something that is very tense between two people, rather than looking at the other person and going, I knew it, here they go again, but to reverse that and begin to do that to yourself. And to think very quickly about your own brokenness. And to look at the other person and say, I don't know their full story. Maybe I don't know what they've been through today. They're having to live with me. Who could not have that reaction? But the idea is to get out of yourself and to look within and to apply soberness not to the other person, but within yourself. And what this is really challenging you to do is to deal with the the harshest problem in marriage, which is self-centeredness. It will be the cancer of every relationship that you're in. In a friendship, in a team, in a work relationship, with a parent and a child, and especially in a marriage. If you are prone to be self-centered, being incredibly charitable to yourself rather than your spouse or your brother or your friend or your co-worker, cancer has begun. 
But what you must begin to do is you must begin to go, the major issue in this relationship is not them, it's me. And when you begin to do that, you have to go further with what the Apostle Paul says. Because he says, be kind, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. So once you begin to be very sober to yourself, what that will free you to do, actually, is to begin to forgive people. You know, no relationship of any capacity will ever last without the thrust of forgiveness in the middle of it. You know, when you get married, I tell couples this, and you're taking your marriage vows, what you're promising to do to somebody is to forgive them for the rest of their lives. For everything. You know, when you get into a relationship of any kind, and the more intimate the relationship, the more this will come up. So if it's just a camaraderie relationship, there might be a tension, you know, every once or every couple of years. If it's a family, it feels like every holiday season. If it's a marriage, it feels like almost on a weekly basis. But you begin to accrue in a, to accrue in a, a debt. That somebody begins to do stuff in a relationship that you just feel like that was unfair, that was unjust. And when they do it, their debt, their bill is just going up. And debt is just accruing, 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 accruing. And most of the time, because we're afraid to confront one another, or we're very sober, not to ourselves, but to the other person, and we lack charity, we will not talk about it. And so the debt just grows and grows and grows and grows and grows. And often, we don't deal with it until the volcano explodes because we just can't take it anymore. But the question, no matter whether you deal with it in the moment or whether if you deal with it on a monthly basis because you can't have those weekly conversations for fear, you have to ask this question. You will say, who's going to pay for this? Who's going to pay for this debt? And there's only two answers. It's either you or them. And the way we make people pay is, is sometimes intentionally and aggressively, but sometimes it's very passive. And we say, I forgive you. But make no mistake, somebody has to pay for the debt. You, when you say forgive you, I forgive you, that's not just a phrase. That's not just something we say and the pain goes away. This is why we so often passively, aggressively hurt one another. Because we say I forgive you, but we don't actually forgive one another. But there's a debt there and somebody is going to absorb that debt. Let me illustrate this for you if that doesn't make any sense. Say I come into your house right after this and it's Sunday dinner, so uh, you're going to be very kind to me and break out the fine china and we're going to have a nice meal and I uh, am taking that $200 plate that somebody spent for you at your wedding to the dishes and I just slip and drop it on the floor and crashes. Who's going to pay for that? Now, there's two options. I could go, I am so sorry. I apologize. Let me write you a check and pay you back for that so you can go replace that. Or you can look at me and say, no worries. It's not a big deal. I forgive you. And when you say that, it's not as though that sort of situation just floats in the air. You just absorbed $200. You just lost it. And in every situation with somebody else, either you pay for it or they pay for it. And what Edwards calls us to do is most of the time our tendency is to say, you will pay for it. But what the gospel calls us to do is to say, I will pay for it. I will pay this debt. I will pay this debt. I will pay this debt. 
And you know you're paying the debt when the purpose of your relationship is pursuing reconciliation. See, if you, if you forgive somebody, but the forgiveness doesn't lead towards you and that person being closer and being reconciled, you've never forgiven them. Because you just can't say it unless you're pursuing to be reconnected, reunited to that person towards being one flesh. I'll tell you the story of a woman who did. There was a Canadian newspaper a couple years ago that told a story of a frail black woman from South Africa who had a police officer named Vanderbrook murder her son and a couple years later capture her husband and burn him alive. And once the apartheid ended, he was charged and taken to jail and he's on trial and the woman's at the trial and the judge says, what would you like us to do with this man who's murdered your son and murdered your husband in front of you. And she said, I want these three things. She said, first, I want to be taken to the place where my husband's body was buried so that I can give him a proper burial. And secondly, because my husband and son were my only family, I want for Mr. Vanderbrook to become my son. I would like to come twice a week to the ghetto and spend a day with me so that I can pour on him whatever love I still have remaining within me. Thirdly, I would like Mr. Vanderbrook to know that I offer him my forgiveness because Jesus Christ died to forgive me. Then she walked across the courtroom and embraced that man and hugged him. The story says that Vanderbrook fainted and the courtroom began to break out singing the lyrics to Amazing Grace. Now what that picture tells us many things What it tells us right now is there's no such thing as saying I forgive you to somebody without trying to reconcile with them, without pursuing embrace with them. And the beauty and the glory of the the picture that Paul is painting here is when you pursue somebody this way, where you are remarkably charitable with them, where the gospel literally is pouring out of you in a way that you are exuding Christ-likeness in a way that the world has never seen. It will make people faint. And you know what it will do, what it will produce in your relationships is if you are an incredibly charitable person, do you know what your, your friend will do or your sibling will do or your spouse will do? They will start being honest with you. If, the, if they know that you will forgive, they will start telling you the truth. And if you know that they will be very sober to themselves, if somebody believes in sobriety of themselves over you, do you know what that will happen in your relationship? That person, you can go tell them the truth more often because you know when you pursue them, they won't come right back at you with gloves. Because fundamental to their belief is that they are more sober than you. And when you start doing that, you know what's happening? The fig leaves are coming off. And you're starting to pursue one flesh. The path is in there. But secondly, it's out there. Paul says this, and I'll read this in verse 33 of chapter 5. He says, however, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. 
Now, we're looking just at this marriage text, but the entire chapter uh, of, of Ephesians 5 and the early chapters of Ephesians 6 are all um, Paul dealing with different kinds of relationships. And e- each one of them has a certain role. There's parents and children, there's slaves and masters. But the commands and the ideas that remain the same is that in order to pursue one flesh, in order to pursue unity in a, in a relationship, you must embrace the role within which you are called. And each relationship entity has certain particular roles that God has designed for the world to work. And particularly here in marriage, what it says is, husbands, love your wives. Wives, respect your husbands. And that language today might be the most disgusting to us in our culture. We have, we have an enormous aversion to the idea because our instinct is to fight that. What we want to do is we want to go into relationships on our own terms. And we want to create roles for ourselves. We want to create entities that we say, we will define this and no one can tell me what a, what a wife is or no one can tell me what a husband is or no one can tell me what a coworker is or no one can tell me what a friendship is really is. I will define that and do that for myself. And we've been doing that for about 25 years. And what psychologists and sociologists are noticing is that actually that is a very destructive pattern. And it's actually causing us more pain than it is freedom. Robert Tabby, a professor at University of Virginia, he says that relationship roles must not be thought of as constricting us that they actually are ways of freeing us. He says this because uh, the essence of a narcissist, which is somebody he says you cannot be in any kind of relationship with, it just will never work. He says the essence of a narcissist is somebody who says the rules and the roles do not apply to me. I make my own rules. I define this myself. I will tell you how you can relate to me and how you can't relate to me. No one can put me in a box. He says, that's the essence of a narcissist. And when you have that kind of person, it's not freeing. It's more constrictive than any kind of relationship you've ever been in. And you will never, ever, ever be one. But he says, and this is not even Christian counseling, he says, the only way to embrace unity and intimacy in a relationship is to embrace the roles within which you have been designed to embrace. And so please understand, if this language of love and respect bothers you, there there are lots of caveats I want to give you with this, but I don't have time to give them all. But please please rest assured with this. The biblical view of love and respect is not one that it involves some 1920s domesticated thing that told stories of abuse. These roles are designed by God for thousands of years within which we are to embrace and find unity and oneness and find the most beautiful part of yourself. More so, what Christian counselors have told us is that these roles are windows into the deepest longings of our sexual souls. 
and our longings and what we crave for the most in this world. I'll give you a couple examples. And because we're talking about marriage, I'll have to restrict these to marriage at the moment. But, but these are windows if you want to know about yourself more and about men and women in this world. Uh, William Carey, uh, in his book, His Needs, Her Needs, uh, described this in his research so well. He said, here's what women most crave in the world. He said, one, they must feel cared for. This is why he said they want to be treated romantically. That they, they have a need to be valued. It's not just stereotypical. It's the idea that I, if you say you care for me, you will value me over your job. You will value me over other people in this world. You will value me above any relationship, over your parents, over your siblings, over your coworkers, over that other person you work with. Secondly, women value conversation. Now, there's, clearly, there's so many stereotypical jokes we could say about that. But the idea is what a woman values is that a man who lets her into her life. It's not just talking for the sake of talking. It's talking to say, I let you in on things I don't let other people in on. Husbands, when when a woman asks you about your day, it's not because she's petty. It's not just because she's researched. It's because she wants to be a part of your life. And when when you tell her what you're saying is, Letting you in on things that I go through is valuable to me. Third, women value honesty and openness. They want to be able to say they know her man better than anyone. I I remember when I, I deeply hurt my wife with this about six or seven years ago, uh, I wrote an email to about seven colleagues and I asked them questions like, who what do you think I'm good at? What do you think I'm gifted at? Where do you see me in 10 years? I asked them all these sort of uh, deep questions that I was wrestling with, and she found that email and was crushed. And, and naturally, if you're a, you're a guy, you're like, why in the world would that be hurtful to write a bunch of guys that email? She said, because you never asked me these questions. And she wanted me to be more honest and open with her than anyone else. Fourthly, they value, he said, they value um, financial security. Now, before we get uh, too superficial about that observation, there's a profound longing for security there, to feel safe, to feel as if there's someone in the world who's thinking for you, to feel as if there's someone in the world who cares about your worries, about your anxieties. Fifth, he said they value, women value commitment. A woman wants to know that he or she, that she and her children are more valuable than work. That no matter what, he's more committed to his family, he's more committed to her than he is to anything else in this world. Summary, husbands love your wives. This is what he said about men. He said, here's what men value. He said, men value, and, and, and feel free to laugh at this one, number one, physical affection. 
But women, you need to know the longing for physical affection is not just biological. It's a deep longing for a man to be cared for. To be shown that he is special. That he is adored. And it makes more sense to him, listen, spiritually, to be cared for that way than it might feel to you. But it's way more than just a physical craving. Secondly, he said, men value friendship. Men want, men, men love to have a woman who share interests with them. Have you, have, you ever, have you ever noticed this in any relationships that men love a woman who will go hunting with them or fishing with them or go to the same kind of movies or sports? And if you don't do that, don't, don't, don't feel bad about that. But the idea is that he, he a, a man longs to be uh, with a woman who will join and show interest in what he already loves. Third, he said, men value trust. They want to be trusted. This is why my wife and I fight so much in the car. Because when she's like, you know, sticking her feet up on the dashboard and like cringing because that car is five miles away down the road. (laughs) And I'm like double gripping the steering wheel out of just like, would you just trust me? It's funny, but there's something profound that we long for, and it's that that someone would know we're trying and we want to be trusted. Fourthly, men long support. Men are, are constantly out in the world battling with themselves and battling with other men and battling with idols that they sometimes embrace too much of and sometimes are trying to rid of themselves of. And there's nothing more painful than battling that and then coming home to a home where there's more of a battle. Because, ladies, nothing will make a man stay with you more than if his home, his marriage, is his safe place in the world that wounds him and causes him more insecurity than anywhere in the world. If he's more insecure in the marriage, if he's more insecure in the home, do you know what he'll do? He'll stay at work or he'll pursue it somewhere else. Fifthly, he said, men long for admiration. We just just long to be the man, to be significant. This is why there are so many stereotypes about doctors having affairs with nurses or lawyers with secretaries. It's because who's there when you do the most significant thing in your day? to observe it, and to think how incredible is this guy. In summary, what, <laughs> what this guy is saying is exactly what the Apostle Paul is saying. Men long for respect. Wives, respect your husbands. Look, it's not asking you to embrace some weird domestic role where you are a square peg and it's a round hole. It's saying this, those are your longings. And your tendency will be to give the other person what you want. 
and to give the person how you feel like you want to be cared for. But do you know, if you do that, you're never ever getting out of self-centeredness. Because you're only thinking about other people in light of yourself. You're only thinking other people in light of your own specific needs. And that's why we're never one. But in every relationship, most particularly in marriage, what this calls you to do is to love and to care for somebody else on their terms, on their needs, on their longings. And when two people in any kind of relationship, specifically in a marriage, begin to love each other on their terms, you know what happens? They begin to become one flesh. So it's not just in there. It's out there. But thirdly, the way to become one flesh is down there. Look, every command that Paul gives us, he says this, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. He says more stuff. In chapter 5, he says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. Wives, submit to your husbands just as the church to Christ. Everything you're called to in a relationship is after the image of Christ. Because he is the essence of humanity. And he is the essence of intimacy. And he is the essence of unity. And he comes from the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who have forever upon ever been one body, spirit, essence, and unity. And the way to follow Christ is only one way. It's down. Because this is a Jesus who went only to the cross. And so if you're ever going to be in a relationship that gets beyond the superficial, listen, it will involve your own death. And it will involve your own sacrifice. And that's so countercultural to the way that we are interacting today. Because here's how we're doing relationships. I, I just can't, I can't hang out with that person anymore. They just, it takes me two days to recover. Yeah, I can't, I, can't, I can't go with your family to Thanksgiving anymore. It takes me till after the new year to, to, to feel normal again. I can't, I can't stay in this marriage. It feels like you're robbing me of life. It, it feels like there are no good days. And do you know what we're saying in all those statements? In every one of those statements... When we're crying like that, we're saying, I don't want to die. I don't want to die anymore. And we think the way to find life in this world is to avoid conflict, to avoid suffering, to avoid pain, to avoid all of it. But look, the way Jesus brought life back to a dying world was only through his death which means the only way that you're going to find life in relationships is through your own death. So if you have a relationship where you never, ever are frustrated or you're never exhausted, exasperated, worn out, I, I would say you don't have a rich relationship 
Because when you feel that, listen, that's your own death happening. And the example of Christ is to, is to stay following. Because the way to become one flesh is in here, out there, and it's down there. But after a while, you'll go, how do we keep doing this? This is, I'm just tired and exhausted. And I, I, I don't know if I can keep doing this. And so you have to fourthly look up there. You know, this entire chapter says that relationships when, are only done through the power of the Holy Spirit. And, and that's not just a spiritual lesson. It's saying you have to assume the gospel in order, to, in order to forgive somebody, in order to think of yourself more sober than somebody else. You have to think about the good news of the gospel over and over and over again. And the only way you do that, especially in a marriage, is if you gaze at your real spouse, which is Jesus himself. You know, when Paul says this in 532, he says, this, is, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. For years, that used to bug me. I remember as a young kid thinking, like, here's Paul again. He always has to make everything about Jesus. Um, like, he can't even talk about marriage. Yeah, exactly. He can't even talk about marriage, and he just has to sort of feel like he slide that Jesus thing in there. But what I realized is that as he's talking about giving yourself up for somebody, as he's talking about loving somebody and, and giving them care and intimacy on their terms, even though you may not be getting it back at all, he's saying, do you, do you know you already have this in Christ? Do you know that, that this is already true for you? Right now, in Jesus. That everything that you're resistant to in a relationship, I can't forgive them anymore. I, can't, I cannot talk to them anymore. They're exhausting. I can't be intimate with them anymore. He says, do you realize you already have that thing in Jesus? Listen, the thing that you long for, the thing that you can't do, he will give you, and he already stays with you, no matter what. And Paul says, that's not something you can hope for, you can aspire to. He says, it's true right now. If you ever want to have oneness with somebody where you can be open and honest, or you can be your broken self, and be safe and intimate with them, or you want to forgive them, you want to have a disposition that, listen, you can tell me anything, and I promise you, I will fall on the sword. I will pay the debt. You want to learn to get outside of yourself constantly and love people on their terms, on their needs, on their longings. The only thing that will keep your heart aflame is if somebody's doing that to you. And the majesty of the gospel is that Jesus begins to do that to you before you can do anything back. I love a song a guy wrote about Jesus. He says these lyrics, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. You bring all your history. I'll bring the bread and the wine. We'll have us a party where all the drinks are on me. 
And as surely as the rising sun, you will be set free. Let me illustrate this for you and then we'll, we'll be done. One of the uh, most profound books a mentor ever gave me is he, uh, a book called uh, Letters to an Unborn Child by a guy named uh, David Ireland. And David contracted Lou Gehrig's disease towards his life. And when he learned that he was uh, probably soon to die within a year, his wife became pregnant. So he was afraid that he would never meet his child. So he began to write letters to them. And the most profound letter in there is the letter he wrote saying, I want to introduce you to your mother. So he said, here's how we go on a date. He said, when we go on a date, because I'm in a wheelchair and can't do anything for myself, she has to undress me, remove my fecal matter bag, shower me, comb my hair, brush my teeth, get me dressed, put me in a chair. Then she does everything for herself. She goes and showers, she gets dressed, she gets ready. Then she takes the wheelchair outside, pulls the van out, puts me in the car. She drives us to the restaurant. She does the same thing. We get that to the restaurant in reverse. We get to the restaurant, which is a reservation under her name that she's made it. We get there. She orders food for the both of us. She feeds me, and she feeds herself. Then she pays the bill. Then we do everything in reverse. She takes me outside. She puts me in the van. She drives us home. She gets me out. Then she has to empty my fecal matter bag again. Then she has to bathe me off, brush my teeth, put my pajamas on, put me in the bed. And as she's tucking me in the bed, she says these words to me. Thank you for a lovely evening. I had a wonderful time being with you tonight. Look, when, when you get to heaven and you see Jesus caring for you in every one of your needs, and giving himself fully for you in ways you didn't even imagine, I don't think you'll see that and go, thank you very much. I appreciate that. I think for the first time, you will have clarity that just finally says, how can you love me like this? And if that reality shows up in your life every once in a while today, then in there, out there, and down there, you can begin to become one flesh with somebody because of up there. Let me pray for us. Jesus, there is no place that sin and pain has shown up more particular than in relationships. And we have felt the pain of that, yet our desires of being one with somebody remain the same. Would by the power of your gospel and the beauty of Jesus, would you begin to heal our relationships in this room, our friendships, our relationships with our children, with our parents, with our siblings, with our coworkers, with our roommates, in our marriages. Would you make us sober? Would you make us forgiving? And remind us to look into the gaze in the eyes of Jesus 
who is this no matter what to us. In his name we pray, amen.